Well, welcome to Coffeehouse Questions. We are back for week two of discussing logic. This is Ryan Polly. And joining me again is the uh, one of the senior research scholars at Reasons to Believe, an adjunct professor at Biola University, uh, Kenneth Samples. Thanks for coming uh, back on and joining me again, Ken. Hello, Ryan. It's really good to be with you. Thanks for having me on. All righty. And if you guys missed it, last week we had a discussion where we talked about uh, kind of an introduction to logic and uh, what is logic, why is it important, why should Christians care, and then how do we then apply that to different uh, world religions and even things within Christianity like the cross and its pagan origins, or and how do we think well about these things. And so I just want to encourage you, uh, if you did not catch last week's discussion, go back and catch that introduction. Uh, this week... We're going to be continuing that discussion, talking about the principles of logic and then some of the important logical fallacies that we should know about and uh, be able to think about. And as always, if you have questions or comments on the discussion, you can email those in at contact at coffeehousequestions.com. Go to the Facebook page at facebook.com slash coffeehousequestions. Follow me and write me on Twitter at ryanpolly 3 or by text message at 714-989. Six nine two seven. So again, as we come back to this discussion on logic, we finished up last week talking about the principles of logic or the logical principles, the law of non-contradiction, excluded middle, and then we were just about to get to the law of identity. And uh, and you talked about how the law of non-contradiction and the law of excluded middle helps us know that two contradictory religious claims cannot both be true at the same time and in the same respect. Uh, either Jesus is God or he's not. Yes. Um, and so I think one thing that kind of flowed from that and we were just about to get to is someone might say, well, yeah, Christian, you know, you can't, you know, either God, Jesus is God or he's not, but how can you claim to know that he is and therefore making all other claims about Jesus false? Yeah, those are... Those are very important questions, and I, I, again, would kind of underscore something we, we said in the previous program, that that these laws of logic, they're not subjective, they're not invented. Uh, many logicians of the Western world would say that they describe the very nature of reality. That is, we like to say they're ontologically real. We also say they're cognitively necessary, meaning that if you don't use the laws of logic and rely upon them, there's no way of being consistent in your thinking. And then lastly, they appear to be irrefutable because um, you have to use them to even deny them. You're stuck with them. And, and so when it comes to the claims that religions make, for example, you know, the, the historic Christian claim derived from the New Testament, affirmed by all of the branches of Christendom, is that Jesus Christ is God incarnate. He is God in human flesh. He's a single person who had uh, both a divine and human nature. Now, Islam uh, has common ground with Christianity, certainly being a monotheistic religion, claiming to have connections, biblically speaking, back to Abraham, an Abrahamic monotheism of this type. But notice that in Islam, they, they deny the Christian position. They say, you know, Jesus lived a moral life, a holy life, and he may have performed miracles, but they say he is not God incarnate. Well, 
That's a contradiction. Christianity says he is God incarnate. That's A. Islam says he's not God incarnate. That's non-A. They can't both be true. And because there's no middle ground, it's he either is or he isn't. And so Christians, of course, uh, can be asked, well, on what basis do you believe that's true? And of course, uh, again, the branches of Christendom would say, well, it is, is based upon uh, what we believe to be historical revelation from God. We believe these are reasonable inferences about Jesus being both divine and human. So there's no problem with non-Christians saying, well, how did you come to that conclusion? Or how did historic Christianity define those things? But ultimately, what we're saying here is A cannot equal non-A. And in this case, it's either A or non-A. So that's the law of non-contradiction, the law of excluded middle. And if we were to add the law of identity, uh, it says that A is A, a thing, an event, or a judgment is what it is. A true statement is true. And so in the statement, Jesus is God incarnate, uh, we're saying that uh, this is, uh, that, you know, that Jesus is God. Uh, and, and so these laws make all thinking possible. And uh, Christians through the centuries, philosophers and theologians, Ryan, have said that probably the best way of explaining or understanding or accounting for these laws is that they come from a transcendental mind. They come from a mind beyond the universe, and Christians and Jews would say it's the mind of God. And so how would an atheist ground the laws of logic not believing that they come from a mind of God? Would they say that they, even a, a materialist or naturalist, would they say that laws of logic either don't exist or they are a physical thing that exists somewhere? Or how would they defend the existence of the laws of logic? It's a very good question. Uh, they might take one or two different uh, tack to this topic. They might say that, uh, you know, the laws of logic are not um, ontologically real. They're, they are, you know, they are simply uh, our own human ability to kind of conceptualize them. Uh, you know, we, we've, kind of, we've kind of come up with them, but they're not grounded in reality. They're not ontologically real. Um, uh, so one way of saying is that in, instead of saying that they're discovered, we might say that in, in some way we invented them. Now, I think that's a very difficult position to defend. Now, another way you could reason is you could kind of borrow from Platonism and say, well, maybe there's this world where there are these invisible conceptual realities and logic and the laws of logic appear to be part of that. Now, again, I think you need an explanation for that. I think the best explanation is that uh, mind, that reason, rationality, logic are associated with a mind. If these are universal principles, then they're likely associated with a universal mind. So I think you could still make, you know, a inference to the best explanation or best explanation abductive type of reasoning that God is the best explanation. But I think it's very difficult, Ryan, to explain 
principles of reason and rationality if all you have is a physical universe. And I have been in conversations with atheists where they have claimed that the laws of logic are dependent on a human mind, and so therefore before any humans existed there was there were no laws of logic and so kind of they were created uh by the human mind as he just recognized the best way in which things should function uh have you heard anything similar if so have is there a response for that yeah i have i i i think you're really kind of down to only a few you know options either the laws of logic like like numbers like you know, universals, they're, they're either discoverable, um, or they're, you know, they're invented. And I think it's very difficult to say that, you know, humans came along and somehow, uh, invented these universal principles that are actually applicable. You know, it, it, it seems to me that, uh, here I'm with St. Augustine. St. Augustine said, that there appear to be certain eternal conceptual ideas. And, um, you know, the laws of logic seem to kind of ground rationality uh, in, in a way that uh, there's no way we could invent them. So I think, I think one of the Achilles heels of atheism, of naturalism, is its inability to kind of ground and give an adequate explanation for, for reason. And maybe add to that morality, meaning to life. So um, I think theism is in a much stronger way. And if I might say, I think Trinitarian theism even better because we believe in a relational God, uh, three persons who reason and interact, uh, three minds, three persons who are the one God. So I, I think we're in a we're in a pretty good position. Plus, why? Why so many of the great logicians, why have they been Christian? Because Christians value reason and logic and rationality. Mm. Christians today ought to value it as well. That's good. Uh, I completely agree with that. We need to be able to think critically and well. And it's always exciting when uh, people can think well and, and don't kind of throw these things out. I remember having a discussion uh, once with... Um, a Mormon and bringing up a logical inconsistency. And he just said, well, I just don't believe in the logic logic then. Um, and just kind of, well, if I just don't believe in it, then, then it's fine. I can just commit this fallacy or, or whatever. And it's like, well, no, you can't, you know, as, as you talked about these, these laws are inescapable. Uh, we can't get around them and, you know, to try and deny it, uh, you have to affirm them. And so have you have you heard any objections to the laws of logic? Do they exist? Well, I, I think that uh, I think that, uh, again, probably it comes at it in two ways. Either you argue, uh, as we mentioned earlier, that somehow the laws of logic are dependent on some kind of human discovery or human inquiry or that maybe you have what is called a mystical approach, where you have Zen Buddhism, where you have uh, different ways of, you know, of, of thinking about things, that, that maybe there is a mystical intuition that precedes or stands above the laws of logic. Mm-hmm. So certainly there have been people 
who've said, no, they're much more subjective, or other people have said, you know, they're not conducive to uh, careful reasoning. Uh, truth can't be apprehended by the mind or by reason. It has to come from some kind of mystical intuition. But, of course, to say all of that requires the laws of logic. To yeah. say all of that, uh, you have to utilize the laws of logic. I remember very early on when I was teaching logic at a public college, and I had a student in there, really liked him. He was a young guy, very thoughtful and uh, very personable. And, and he was a Buddhist, and he said, you know, Professor Samples, I, I want to give you some reasons why I why I don't trust reason. And I, I teased him. I said, you can't use reason to beat up on reason. You know, you, you want to give me reasons why you can't trust reason. Well, that, you know, <laughs> that collapses on itself. So, yeah, you have kind of the mystical venue where people develop uh, a very different way of thinking about uh, principles. Or, again, in some ways, you try to reduce them to subjectivity. Yeah. I don't think either either approach ultimately works. Yeah. And I think it was Ravi Zacharias, I don't remember, telling a story of, of going out to lunch. Uh, maybe you've heard the story of going out to lunch with someone from an Eastern religion. And he was arguing that, no, the laws of logic don't exist. You know, it's the Eastern way of thinking. And he just responded and he said, so you're saying that it's either the Eastern way of thinking or the Western way, and it can't be both at the same time in the same sense. And, and the guy went, uh, oh, I see what you're saying now. Right. And so, you know, he, he's using the law of non-contradiction to say it's only the Eastern way, which shows that there is no logic. Yeah, very good. Um, so kind of getting to that, uh, we have about 15 minutes uh, left. What would you say are some of the maybe the, the most important logical fallacies that, that Christians should understand and maybe have an idea of or, or make sure they're not using themselves or when they're having those conversations? Yeah, such an important, you know, a, a, a fallacy is an error. It's a defect. You've made a mistake in reasoning. And uh, logic is, again, intended to try to help us to order our thinking and to, you know, to be careful. An argument uh, might sound complex. We don't mean a spat or a fight that you might get into with your, your, your spouse or yeah. friend. An argument is where you make a claim that something is correct, something is true, something is right, and then you seek to support that claim. You give facts or evidence or reasons. The claim is called the conclusion. The support are called your premises. They they do the supporting. I think that there are some, some common fallacies that... Uh, that all of us are are uh, liable to, to to commit. The first one I want to talk about is the straw man fallacy. Uh, it's called a straw man because it's easier to knock down a straw figure than it is a, a strong man of muscle and bone. A straw man fallacy is where you have two arguers and... Um, you misrepresent, you exaggerate, you embellish your opponent's argument. So it's no longer their argument. You've made it look more extreme. You've misrepresented uh, another person's argument. And, and I think that this is so important. In order to critique another's argument, maybe an atheist, maybe a Hindu, uh, whomever it may be, the only way you can really critique uh, efficiently effectively another person's argument is if you first understand their argument 
Mm-hmm. I think it's it's easy to when you get into an evangelistic or an apologetic discussion with somebody who holds different ideas, maybe a different worldview, it's easy to stop, you know, listening and you're thinking what you're going to say, you know, when that person stops talking. Yeah. Straw man is when you misrepresent your opponent's argument. You and usually you make it look more extreme because extreme arguments are easier to dispose of than are more nuanced arguments. And the straw man fallacy means that we need to listen. You know, and what I like to say to people is when I'm engaging in an argument, I'll, I'll say to them, now, let me see if I understand you correctly. It sounds like this is your major claim. This is your conclusion you want me to accept. And am I correct? Or these are the evidences or the facts that you think support that claim. And by asking those kinds of questions, I'm staying on point. I'm, I'm engaging in what we call the golden rule of apologetics. I want to treat people's arguments the way I want them to treat mine. So a real problem fallacy is when we misrepresent another person's argument. We don't take the time to get it right. You know, we embellish it. We make it look more extreme. And therefore, we can knock it down. Uh, and that is a that that is a fallacy that I think requires good listening, careful thinking, and and again getting into the habit of saying no. Have I got your? Have I understood your position? And by the way, when you do that, people like to be heard. People like to know, hey, this you know this Ryan guy, he's actually listening to me. He's he's actually paying careful attention to my argument. I think even from a psychological standpoint, people like to be heard. And if you get their argument right and you're patient with them, then your criticisms are more likely for them to take them into account. So straw man fallacy is a, is a very easy fallacy to commit where we misrepresent our opponent's argument. Yeah, and I'm so glad that you mentioned that because that is one of actually one of the questions that popped into my mind as soon as you mentioned the straw man and, and you brought it up is, is how do we keep ourselves from committing this? And I think that you you made the great point of that we need to ask the question, uh, you know, is this what you're saying? Am I understanding you right? And repeat their argument because I think many times we get into conversations and sometimes maybe they just explain their argument in, in words that are confusing. Other times we just misunderstand it. Other times we're not listening. And if any of those happen, then we start arguing about something they're not talking about or they're not even trying to defend and, and, and then we're just talking past each other. That's right. And you made a great point. I mean, it may be that they're confused. And by asking questions, you know, you can help them to kind of reframe it so that they're actually being a little more careful and consistent. And again, um, you know, reasoning and truth, it's more than just winning. It's about understanding. It's about it's about caring for these sacred things we call truth and reality. And so, um, you know, it it's easy to kind of, uh, you know, get emotional when you're in an, an argument or, you know, to forget about what people are saying. You know, sometimes you just stop listening because you, you're just dying to say something. But I think you're always going to come up with better criticisms the more carefully you listen to somebody else's position. Absolutely, yeah. Then, then you can really see: Are they committing fallacies? Where, where is this not lining up? How can I ask good questions? Because, yeah, I think if we can ask those questions that expose 
some issues or, or lack of evidence or whatever it may be within their point of view and get them to think, then that's the way we, we really can, can influence people and, and help them help change their mind or just make them think about something. Um, you know, the, the shouting match where you just tell them they're wrong uh, is only going to put up a wall so they don't want to listen to you. Whereas if I think if we can ask those good questions of, wait, did, are you saying this and make them think through their points? Because, I mean, how often have you been in a conversation where when you start to ask questions, you realize that they've never actually thought about their position before? That's that's exactly right. I mean, we live in an age where um, uh, logic and careful thought and deliberation are not highly prized. And so sometimes sometimes people are just kind of thinking out loud. You know, they're just kind of talking and they haven't kind of worked it through and, you know, carefully thought about, you know, where they want to go with this. So, yeah, you're, you're right on target. Awesome. Okay, so, so the first one is a straw man. We should not be uh, misrepresenting our opponent's argument just so that we can knock it down easy. We need to make sure that we are correctly understanding their view uh, or maybe even making their view a little bit stronger. And uh, what would be the second fallacy that you think it's important for Christians to understand? Yeah, there's a couple of them, but I'm going to go with what we call the red herring. Now, herring, of course, is a fish. It's a what I like to call a smelly fish. And this fallacy got its name because when a convict would break out of jail or out of prison, uh, the guards would get the, uh, you know, the, the, the bloodhounds who could sniff out a scent. And the smart convicts would get some fish and rub it on the ground. And when the, when the dogs would get uh, the smell of that herring, they'd forget all about the convicts. The red herring is a diversionary tactic. The red, the red herring is when you engage in diversion. So um, what happens here is instead of addressing the logical point, you actually change the subject. You shift it. Uh, I use an example in my book, A World of Difference. Uh, it goes like this. It says you've argued against the so-called plague of abortion on demand based upon your pro-life convictions, but war, famine, and disease cause millions of death every year throughout the world. Shouldn't we address those issues? Well, it's true that war and famine and disease are real concerns, but the issue is abortion on demand. You have to be careful about changing the subject, diverting attention away. And I, I think that this happens a lot in our discussions and maybe happens a lot even in our evangelistic and apologetic discussions where we miss the point, we get off the track. A very important point to always be asking yourself from a logical point of view is, what is the point? And am I stayed there? Have I changed the subject? Have I, in fact, engaged in diversion? Because once you get off the track, once you engage in uh, areas that are not the point, then everything you say is irrelevant. So you want us really to pull that back. And this ties in, I think, nicely, the straw man and the red herring, because, again, you want to you want to have a dialogue, say, hey, whoa, whoa, wait a second, I think maybe you've misrepresented, that's a straw man. Or you want to say, look, I think we've really gotten off track here. We're really talking about the question of 
the the life of the unborn child. Uh, yeah, there are these other issues, ethical issues that are important, but let's save those for another time. Let's stay focused here. So, you know, it's it's easy for your conversations, your discussions, your arguments to go all around uh, and logic kind of again pulls us back to, to say let's stay on point you know let's let's not I'm not going to be diverted I'm not going to have my attention and my focus diverted uh, by a red herring fallacy you know with the Jehovah's Witness at your door that was exactly what I was just about to bring up I think that is you know, one of the very common uh, examples that happens to me frequently yeah you start talking about you know the Trinity or the deity of Christ, Pretty soon, you know, you're, you're talking about uh, uh, whether hell is real or you're talking about the state of the decline of human culture. And it's very important, I think, to say, look, uh, you know, we don't have a lot of time here. Let's let's pick a topic. Let's stay on it. Let's let's keep let's hold each other accountable and not get diverted. The red herring and the straw man are very common fallacies uh, that we have to we have to be aware of and and tackle. Yeah, and and that's a good way to respond, and, and I use it frequently. I, I not too long ago was on, I had a discussion with someone, uh, a friend on Facebook, and and after a couple interchanges of messages back and forth, I finally said, you know, within five messages, you change the topic four times. How are we going to ever come to a conclusion or accomplish anything if we can't even stay on topic? And and I think you mentioned the same thing happens with Jehovah's Witnesses, where you want to discuss, you know, is Jesus God? And then you get done after an hour and you go, what did we just talk about? And I that's where logic, ordering your thinking, hey, I'm, I'm going to be careful here. You know, I'm going to I'm going to repeat your argument back to you to make sure I got your argument. And I'm going to keep both of us on track. I, I don't want to get off on the decline of culture when we're talking about the Trinity. Yeah, that's good. Um, so it looks like we have time maybe for one more, and then I have a question to kind of wrap it all up. Uh, so do you have kind of one more top fallacy that, that Christians should have an idea of as, as they start to study this topic? I, I think another one that's very important um, is uh, wishful thinking, the wishful thinking fallacy. The wishful thinking fallacy basically consists of something like this. I want something to be true. I wish something is true. I really want it to be true. Therefore, the wanting and the desiring make it true. Hmm. No, um, just because you want something or you wish something to be true, or we can put it in the negative. I don't want God to exist. I I don't want anything to do with God or religion. Um, that's just not something I'm com- comfortable with. You have to be careful that you're... What, what you wish or what you want or what you desire is not seen as actual evidence. Now, there is a, an argument called the argument from desire, but that argument has more to do with the yearnings that we have in life seem to be an indication that there is you know, something real out there. But wishful thinking is when we kind of move away from reason and facts and evidence and argument and we simply appeal to, you know, what we want to be true. Uh, you want to make sure that uh, you ground your argument in making a, a legitimate claim and then having 
some support that you can you can really a- a- appeal to. So, you know, it's uh, it's easy to kind of shift into that mode where I want this to be. I mean, I I'm a Laker fan. I want the Lakers to win the championship, but but that's not a good argument unless I've got some you know some support for it. So I think it's easy to kind of engage in wishful thinking when we lose consciousness of the need to have an argument or have some substance, some rational, logical substance. Yeah, the substance is important, and, and the evidence that follows and, and goes along with our arguments. Uh, you know, the, that's one of the points in, in one of the talks that I give of, you know, if I break my arm and I go to the doctor and, you know, he says, your arm's broken, I, you know, and I don't say, well, that's just your opinion. You know, this, this is objectively true, it's broken, but then I can't sit there and say, I really wish my arm's not broken. I, I believe with everything inside of me, it's not broken. You know, that doesn't change the fact that it's broken. It's either broken or it's not, and it's independent of my wishes or my beliefs. Yes, very good. Um, so we got about one minute, uh, so quickly, how would you recommend incorporating logic and critical thinking into the church? You know, this probably isn't something you stand up at, on a Sunday morning and, and give a sermon on the laws of logic or on logical fallacies. Yeah, that's, that's such an important topic. I, I, I think that it would be great if pastors could not only emphasize that there are moral virtues, but talk about intellectual virtues and say, you know, arguments, you know, when you make a claim for the truth of Christianity or you're critiquing maybe another worldview or you're looking at ethical issues, people make mistakes in their reasoning. Just just as we make mistakes in, you know, not taking out the trash or we make mistakes on our job, we can make mistakes in our thinking, in our reasoning, in, in our arguing. And uh, it it is easy for people to end up with very... Uh, convoluted, uh, you know, thinking. They can end up with ideas that are false. I, I think if pastors and teachers in the church could talk about the life of the mind, could talk about the value of intellectual virtues, and then start using, you know, examples. I mean, your, your example of the doctor. I mean, you're right. I, I mean, I don't go to my doctor and he says, well, Ken, uh, you know, your blood pressure is a little high. Well, that's just your opinion. No, I, this, my doctor is a really well-trained medical scholar. I know his pedigree. I know how good he is. I know that he is deliberate. Um, you know, we put our trust in people that we think have competence, people who have, have uh, earned a right to have an authoritative opinion. So I really think it, I really think that often, Ryan, pastors, Sunday school teachers, it, it comes down to uh, it, it comes down to really modeling it, that you model for other people that, that learning, that thinking, being careful, prizing truth, not repre- misrepresenting people, uh, not you know diverting attention. I think people start to say, hey, I know that Ryan guy, he's a, not only a sharp guy, but he's careful, and he'll admit when he makes a mistake, you know, that's a person I may want to follow. I, I may want to know, well, what do you think? Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Uh, I've been talking with Kenneth Sample, Senior Research Scholar at Reasons to Believe. 
on the topic of logic. Ken, thank you so much for taking this time and, and discussing these important issues with me today. You're welcome, Ryan. you got a great show. Keep it up. I really appreciate what you're doing. Thank you very much. And for those of you listening, thank you so much for listening. Uh, again, write in with those questions and comments. We have future shows coming up. Make sure you're checking the Facebook page because I post who I'm going to be interviewing. And so if you have questions you want to ask, you can send those in and make sure they get included in the podcast. I hope you all have a wonderful rest of your day and a blessed week. This has been Ryan Polly with Coffee House Questions. Guide my way.